You may wonder where Pastor Bruce's jacket is. Well, I've been wrestling alligators this morning. And so just don't pay any attention to the sweat coming through my shirt. And uh, everything will be okay. Now, it gets hot up here. Jordan said to me last week, our son Jordan, after he was done, he came down and he says, Dad, I am so hot. <laughs> Is it always that hot up there? And I said, yeah. <laughs> so sorry for this, but um, I realized that uh, it's time to change with the times a little bit. So I hope I don't offend you this morning uh, with my appearance. If I do, just turn around, listen to what I'm saying, and look the other direction, and uh, everything will be good. Well, it's good to have you watching online. We're so blessed to be back with you. It's good to be here with our family here at Laurel Hill, and uh, we've enjoyed our time away. We were back with you last week, but didn't get a chance to preach. I told you last week, just be prepared, right, because I got, in fact, I told the Wednesday night crowd, I didn't say anything because Rick was leading the class, and I said, you haven't let me talk for 30 days, so i got to say a lot now. So anyway, no, don't get nervous about that. It'll be all right. We'll, we'll be okay. Um, I do want to make a couple announcements here. Last week I mentioned this notebook uh, that you can purchase if you like. Uh, it's given through uh, John MacArthur's website. It's the book of Matthew. It just has scripture on the side and a place to take notes. So it's kind of neat if you want something to keep up with officially. A couple people have said they'd like one, but I want to make one more announcement about that. If you have a desire for that, just let me know. Send me an email or text me or something, and we'll order some of them. They're not very expensive at all. I think uh, they're $100. 90 of that goes to the pastor. <laughs> $10 for the book. <laughs> you know how that works, right? All right. But if you want one, let me know. Um, Shoebox Ministry. Just putting in a plug for that. You know, Dee has been sending out emails. Thank you, Dee, for that. And by the way, if you're not getting these emails, uh, let's make sure you are. Some people have said, I'm not sure I'm getting that. We need to double check the list. Make sure you're getting that information. I did want to show this, though. This is not prompted by D at all, but I was reading through some of the Samaritan Purse information, and you probably can't see that. I hope you can see it online okay. But it's a, it says, Cartons full of shoebox gifts have made their way to remote regions of Mongolia where many children have never heard the gospel before. And I thought that was so cool. I thought, how awesome is that? Here's this guy leading these camels, of all things, with shoeboxes strapped to their side, thinking they could very well be some of ours. I mean, I don't know. I don't think this is staged. I don't think this is Hollywood. I think this is, this is accurate. So anyway, it's exciting to be a part of a ministry. Again, this has been one of the biggest ministries of the church for years, and so just want to keep that in front of you as uh, things will progress fast, uh, quickly, as we get closer to the, to the date that we'll need to start packing these things. Uh, I want a meeting. The time has changed. I need to correct this with the early service. But uh, August 18th is now the date for leaders, people who are interested in meeting to help lead Awana this year. And we could use your help. Please consider helping with that. That's going to be at 6.30. That's a Wednesday night, August the 18th. Somebody make sure that that date's correct. I think it is. Congratulations to a couple ladies of our church, Amanda Drumheller, is now known as Amanda Fridas. She married Matt yesterday, and several of you were there, and it's just a precious time to, to be a part of that. Uh, some of us had to skedaddle uh, up north because Andrea Reyes, who's our bookkeeper for the church, part of came to us years ago as a part of our Spanish ministry, is now Andrea Bryant. She got married yesterday, and so two weddings in one day. It was awesome. 
I didn't have to do the one wedding, but I did do the second one, and just a just a precious time. And so I congratulate them. I know, uh, I think Matt and Amanda, I'm not sure, I think they're staying in the area right now, but uh, Andrea and Michael are on their way today to France for a couple weeks. So fancy, right? So I think they're going to have a good time. Also, uh, for us as goldsmiths, it was a very exciting day. And for the Shank family, we have another picture here, I think. Can you, can you throw that up there? This is our son Christian and his new fiance as of fr- uh, Friday, Friday night. So uh, Christian and Jordan, our son Jordan, you know Jordan, uh, they've been planning this uh, in uh, cahoots together for a couple months to surprise Caroline, and uh, they pulled it off. And she's a smart girl. She's a nurse at the university hospital here, and uh, so her wheels were turning quite a bit over the months, And uh, but but they, they pulled it off. It was so funny because uh, they were telling us that they went up to uh, a car garage at JMU where they could see the sunlight, uh, a sunset, and they were on a double date with Jordan and his girlfriend, Ashley, and so they were trying to hide it that way from her, and... Uh, they were videoing some things, and and lo and behold, wouldn't you know, a police officer comes and says, all right, y'all need to move it on. <laughs> and Jordan's like, just a minute. <laughs> you know, we got to take care of this. So anyway, it was it was nice to uh, to enjoy that. And and Caroline's family it comes from a, a a godly family. Her dad's a pastor in Harrisonburg area, and so we're just really excited for them. We'll keep you informed, as they say, right, for the date. All right, so anyway, well, let's, let's pray, and then we're going to look at our text for today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, picking up where we left off many, many moons ago. Father, we do thank you for the joy and the privilege of gathering. Lord, as much as we've sung from our hearts to you these, these great worship songs, Lord, they just remind us of your kindness and your mercy to us. Lord, the church is the place, the worship time is the place where we just come to you and and acknowledge you again uh, as a church family, who you are and, and what you mean to us. And so we, we come with open hearts to hear from you. We come with open minds to receive truth. And I just pray that you'll speak to us now as we go through your word. We thank you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you will, stand with me as we read Matthew 9. I want to back up just a little bit, but we're going to touch on just one little section here that I purposefully left out because I knew that there would be a lot that we needed to discuss in it. So Matthew 9, beginning in verse 18. While he, that's Jesus, was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him and, said to, and so did his disciples. And here's our text for today. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. All right. You may be seated. Praise the Lord. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful story. A tribute to the Lord Jesus Christ here in this particular section, as they all are, of course. Uh, But this one just, for some reason, for me at least personally, just touches my heart a little bit more, and and maybe you'll know why as we get through this. I've titled this, Jesus, Lord, Healer of the Broken Hope. Healer of Broken Hope. 
Now, Matthew, and I could say a lot about that. I could say a lot about how life just kind of leaves us at times with feelings of brokenness, doesn't it? I mean, we're to be people who are broken before the Lord, but you know, you've lived life long enough. You understand what it's like to have your hopes crushed. Many of you can remember starting out in life and having a zeal for what the future was going to be, only to look back now and go, yeah, you know, there's been a lot of things that I would have never wanted to come along in life. And uh, you feel, the, at times, the hopelessness. You, you've been in life, most of you, long enough to know that life does leave you kind of tailspinning at times. And uh, there are times where even you just say, okay, that's it, I'm done. Uh, I'm not going to continue on. And whether it be life, literally, and people do take that path, don't they? Or they, or you may be saying, even if you're just hearing my voice this morning, that um, you know, I'm kind of done with God. He's not fulfilled what I thought he was going to do. And some have said, um, yeah, what I started out with being taught and, and believing and whatnot is just not true. Well, I hope that's not the case, but I know that people live that way. And so we could go down that path. And let's look this morning after a few introductory thoughts here at a woman who was just about at that point. Now, you remember, if you've been with us in our study, that Matthew has given several examples up to this point of Jesus healing many people, such as back in chapter 8, after, of course, he had finished his wonderful Sermon on the Mount. He does these amazing healings. The first one was the leper of a dreaded disease in chapter 8, verse 2 and 3, and just set this man free uh, from something that just bound him so tightly. And then there was this centurion servant. You remember that person? in verses 5 and 7 in chapter 8. And then Peter's mother-in-law, who was sick with a fever, Jesus comes in and heals her miraculously. They go across the Sea of Galilee to the region of the Gadarenes, and that's where he heals the two demoniacs in a, in a wonderful way. And then they come back across the sea to his hometown, back in Capernaum again, and he heals the paralytic and then most recently, we saw just the beginnings of our text there today, the synagogue official's daughter whom he healed, who had died and, and J Jesus raised her back to life. Wonderful things, amazing things, so much so that the people were just astounded at who Jesus is. All the while, Matthew now proving that Jesus is the Messiah. That's his purpose in writing the letter, if you remember. He is writing to believers, uh, rather to Jewish, Jewish people, proving to them that this is the long-awaited Messiah. Now, in the showing of these healings, Jesus is displaying himself just as that, as the Messiah. That's very clear. Not only to the people at large, but even to the people who are saying that they're looking for the Messiah to come like John the Baptist's followers even, and even John the Baptist himself, even though he was the cousin of Jesus. We know in Matthew 11, we'll get to this later, as John is in, in, in prison, uh, he hears of these amazing works of the Lord and he sends message to him saying, are you the one that we should be looking for? And you know what Jesus' response is? Hey, the blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised again. And so John now is affirmed that, yes, this is him. And so Jesus is proving himself to be the Christ. But secondly, and, and I hope you will understand what I'm saying through this, uh, not that this is better, but in a human sense, it becomes very joyful to know that the second reason Jesus came really is to show us that there is a better life to come. 
a better life to come. Aren't you excited about that? That there's a better life to come. That is, if, if we put our faith and our hope in him, the whole purpose of Jesus coming was to rescue us, to give us the keys, if you will, to the kingdom that belongs to him. And we're going to see that in just a few verses as we get to verse 39 of Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus, our Matthew, records for us this simple statement, but it's so profound. As Jesus was going through all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. If you've ever asked yourself, why did Jesus come? Here it is. It's right here. It becomes really the key to the entire book of Matthew. He came to proclaim the gospel. Notice that's a little G in the writing. That's the truth of the kingdom. That there is a kingdom that Jesus belongs to, beloved, that he has come to proclaim. He came to the earth to tell us, to teach us that he is God. Look at me. Trust me. Believe me. Understand that I am from another world. I am your creator. And I'll take you there with me if you trust me by faith. It's a beautiful, beautiful proclamation. And the key to unleashing the truth of who Jesus is and his healing power, and I'm not talking about mysticism here, I'm not talking about just getting something from Jesus, but it is understanding who he is. The key to his healing power has been displayed to us through faith. In every situation that Jesus has given to us so far in Matthew's writing, it is based on faith. Believing God. Simply acknowledging him for who he is and what he's capable of. And that's how you and I should live our lives. Just like that. Number one, believing he is who he says he is. Every moment of our day should be predicated on the fact that you and I have a God who loves us and he is God. And then secondly, believing that he can do everything that God can do and that only God can do. That was the centurion. Notice the Lord's response to him. Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone, even in Israel. This man wasn't a Hebrew. He was a Roman. But yet his heart was opened to who the Lord was, and the Lord rewarded him because of his faith. You remember when Jesus calmed the storm earlier in chapter 8? He said to the disciples, Why are you afraid? And basically answering his own question, you men of little what? Faith. That's why you're afraid. You're so little in your faith. You remember when the people brought the paralytic to Jesus and they opened up the roof and they lowered him down in? You remember what he said to them? Well, here it is in 9 verse 2. Seeing their what? Faith. Seeing their faith. Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. What is it? What is the pivot point? What is the catalyst? It's faith. Believing in every situation. That's the key. Now, today Matthew is going to give us another example, just kind of nestled in between this story of the synagogue official. Not one only of physical healing, but one of healing of lost hope. And that's why I titled the message the way I did, because this woman struggled greatly physically, and you're going to see that in just a minute. Even more so as we look at Matthew, excuse me, Mark and Luke, as they explain it even much more in detail. But this woman had apparently gotten to the place of just almost total hopelessness. 
And so she reaches out for Christ, and again, we'll see that. So I purposefully skipped over this uh, so we could look at this in its totality right now. So let's keep going with this. The truth is we really know very little about this woman, according to Matthew. Just very, very little here is given to us. What we do know is that she'd been dealing with an issue of blood for 12 years. Okay, Two things are critical there. An issue of blood. There's the word hemorrhage there in the text, meaning just that, that this was some type of issue from her body that was causing her to bleed. Don't really know what it was. Uh, We'll make it more clear here in just a few minutes. And that it was happening for 12 years. Okay, 12 years. Can you remember where you were 12 years ago? The year was 2009. Our son Jordan, who just preached last week, was eight years old. Eight years old. It was right after the kind of collapse financially of everything. And so you say, well, that's not that long ago, you know, 12 years ago. Well, okay, let's be you for a minute dealing with an issue of blood for 12 years. That's a lot of years. But according to Matthew, that's really all we know. And also, by the way, you all had a lot less gray hair that many years ago. Just so we're clear. And so did I. But who's counting? Now, again, both both, uh, Mark and Luke wrote about this encounter, and it's good that they did because it helps us to really see into the heart of this woman a lot better. If you go with me to Mark 5, verse 26, here's how Mark records this. He says, She had endured much at the hands of many physicians. Now, I hope as you're reading the text of Scripture, you're trying to picture what the Lord is describing here. Notice the conjunction, and had spent all that she had and was not helped by all at all, but rather had grown worse. That's not a good story for anybody. In fact, it's really tragic. If you notice what Mark says first, he says she had endured much at the hands of physicians. Now, I like to do word studies, as you know, and so I pause here at certain words Understand what she is, even though our world doesn't. That's another subject. Um, The word endure, though, is interesting. In the lexicon, which is just basically a language dictionary, describes the word in two ways. One is to suffer, and that stands to reason for what's written here. But secondly, it's to experience something hurtful. And usually it is used in a way that implies both physical suffering, and that seems obvious here, but also psychological suffering. So when... It's written that she endured much. This was not just like, oh, good grief, I got to get in my car and I got to go to the doctor and deal with that. No, there was a psychological sickness that was beginning to occur, which often happens in people who are dealing with something for long periods of time. I mean, it's hard enough when it's something real short, right? We start to wonder, oh, my headache, is that a tumor? Right? Or, And we have all these kind of crazy thoughts. Well, when you've had an issue of blood going on for 12 years, there's no telling what's going on in your mind. And so she endured this time. I guess if nothing else, we could say that this dear woman suffered from the medical profession at least at the time. I don't want to be unfair to the medical people. Many of you are that person's. But in the day that the Lord writes this, there was little known. Can you imagine what's known today compared to what was known then? It could have been that this woman could have been fixed very quickly, but the Lord had a different point in it. We don't know. There's a lot of speculation there. If nothing else, we can say this woman did suffer. 
not only physically, but she suffered psychologically. There were emotional things that were happening in her. And we know that also, and let's get into where her mind is through all this, by how she would know, or what she would know at the time. Go with me way back to Leviticus chapter 15. This is Old Testament, and Leviticus, you know, if you're a student of Scripture, you know that this is the giving of the law. This is back in the days of Moses, way back, long before Jesus was on the scene. And God was writing the law for people to live by. And he was very clear about women who had issues of blood. So in verse 25, he says of chapter 15, If a woman has a discharge of her blood many days, comma, not at the period of her menstrual impurity. Now, the reason he says that is because that's just been covered in verses 19 through 24, where the Lord says she is to continue in her menstrual impurity for seven days. Okay, now I want to be very sensitive here because, ladies, you understand this. This is a terrible time of the month, right? Everybody knows that. You women know this better than anybody. But notice the consequences that the Lord lays out for women during their time of their monthly cycle. This goes on back up, in fact, to verse 19 of Leviticus 15. Whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Everything also on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean. Anyone who touches her bed shall wash his clothes clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening also. Whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Whether it is on the bed or on the thing on which she is sitting, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until evening. If a man actually lies with her so that her menstrual impurity is on him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. Now again, that's a tough life for anybody, right? And so we see the requirements of the Lord here. Not only is it tough on the woman, but you see also it's tough on the people who live with her. It's a very, very challenging time of the month. And again, I want to be very sensitive here. I'm a man, and I've not gone through this, although I think men sometimes go through something similar emotionally. If there's any saving grace in the monthly cycle at all for women, it's that it's just that. It's a little bit of a shorter period of time. And I'm saying that because I want to draw your attention again to this woman who suffered with this blood issue, which I don't believe was actually her menstrual impurity, as God puts it, but whatever it was, for 12 years. 12 years. Now you might be thinking as a Hebrew woman today that, okay, I don't like this. It's God's law though. And we'll go through it because it's holy and God's law is perfect. And I can deal with it every month. Well, what if you're doing this every day of your life for 12 years? That's amazing. It's almost unthinkable. Now, Let's look at what this woman has to deal with, though, according to the law. Because God goes on and now moves from the menstrual cycle into a woman who has some discharge of blood. Back to verse 25 of Leviticus 15. If a woman has a discharge of her blood many days, not at the period of her menstrual impurity, that's what we read a minute ago, or if she has a discharge beyond that period, all the days of her impure discharge she shall continue as though in her menstrual impurity. 
she is unclean. Or if she has a discharge beyond that period, all the days of her impure discharge, she shall continue as though in her menstrual impurity she is unclean. Any bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge shall be to her like her bed at menstruation. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, like her uncleanness at that time. Likewise, whoever touches them shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Now, folks, I don't have to tell you, but that's horrible. That is absolutely a horrible life. If you think through it with me just for a minute, not only from the physical pain of what this was, and I'm presuming she had some sort of pain from this, not only that, but not, and not, you add on top of that the physical pain from the doctors and perhaps the procedures that they underwent during those days. Again, I'm speculating here, but that's what medicine does. <clears throat> that's the purpose of medicine is to find cures. And when they don't find cures, they do explorations. They do what they know to do. And that's not wrong in and of itself, but for people who've been through exploratory surgeries, you know that the outcome is not always favorable. And it can be very challenging. Now you put on top of all of that the mental stress of the not knowing, which is always the hard part, you've got a real mess on your hands. Now with this woman, to make it even worse, which... In our world today, we don't have to concern ourselves with this, but she had to consider it a sin, a sin of impurity. And that was unlike the impurity of the menstrual cycle. You say, well, how do I know that? Well, God tells us that in Leviticus 15 as well. Keep going in verse 28. When she does become clean from her discharge, she shall count off for herself seven days, and afterwards she will be clean. Then on the eighth day she shall take for herself two turtle doves or two young pigeons and bring them into the priest to the doorway of the tent of meeting. The priest shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. So the priest shall make atonement on her behalf before the Lord because of her impure discharge. So God in his graciousness, he understands that a woman goes through her cycle every month that's not considered a sin. But beyond that, if there's an issue, then God says something internal to the body is causing this to be, in his mind at least, an impurity. And so it must be atoned for. So she's dealing with the physical. She's dealing with the doctors. She's dealing with all the other things that come with it. And now it's moved into the psychological issues of her life. And beyond that, it's now become a spiritual thing as well. Her life is completely consumed by this issue. And you talk about anguish. Can you imagine not being around your family for 12 years? I don't know how they did this, quite honestly. I'd love to read something that tells me what this looked like tangibly. Can you imagine the brokenness of her hope? 12 years? And nobody knows what to do. There's no medical procedure that can fix this. And apparently it wasn't something that was taking her life, at least according to what the writers write. But I can only imagine the agony of her mental situation. We don't know how old the woman was. At least we're not told that. Perhaps she had children. I can only assume that. Grandchildren. 
maybe even great-grandchildren, a husband, no doubt. Put yourself in her place. Can't touch my children. Can't go to see them. Can't sit down on any of their furniture. Can't embrace my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren. Can't hug them, can't kiss them, can't touch them. Can't love the man that I'm married to, perhaps. It's a tragic situation. I don't know of anybody who's been in that situation that we're talking about here, but many of you know suffering, and you know what it's like to lose hope. There's not one of us who's been living life long enough to know that it hasn't been somewhere in life in a place of losing hope. Some of you have been dealing with physical issues for many, many years. Some of you have been this kind of exploration at the hands of physicians. And I'm, please, I'm not throwing off on doctors and nurses. Praise the Lord for doctors and nurses. Many of you are in that profession or you know people, have family in that profession. And, and thank God we have people like you and the knowledge that we have. But those of you in the medical field know better than anybody else your abilities are limited. You know of the times where you have your meetings with the doctors and the other nurses and you talk about scenarios that you're not sure how to fix. You know of the doctors you would never go to yourself, right? We have people in the medical field who have told us that thing, that, that kind of thing. They'll say, you know what, here's the, here's the scoop. Don't go see that guy. You know the problems with all of that because you know too much. And there are people in your lives who love you, who suffer when you're in pain. You feel, or they feel the pain. I know for me, after my mother had her final stroke, I, I was just so, at times, overwhelmed with just the, the suffering of, in myself of what she was having to go through. I'll never forget just a few hours before she died, and I don't remember exactly how long it was, but it wasn't long. Um, she had caregivers, and um, she was so unable to help, help herself. Uh, she was given, the nurse came to the side of her bed and, like normal and was handing her a handful of pills, and, and my mom was only able to just take her arm and push her arm away. And, and with that, we knew what she was saying. I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. She had endured that long enough. And to this day, I feel personally as her son, I, I feel the pain of that. I remember that scene vividly. And I, I feel and felt for her that enduring agony that she just kept going through. She couldn't talk to us. She couldn't hug my dad. She couldn't touch the kid. I mean, she could, but she couldn't embrace them. You know, She couldn't walk. She couldn't feed herself or, Early on she could, but then after the strokes continued, she couldn't do that on her own. And, and we would watch this. And, and so helpless. There's nothing you could do. But just pray for her. The other day as I took our grandkids back to meet their dad, I stopped by mom and dad's grave. And I'm not typically emotional about this kind of thing, but it seems like every time I stop by their grave, I just start crying like a baby. And there's reasons for that. It's because I miss them mainly. You know, there's something about a young man's life that when dad is not there, he, he doesn't have dad to talk to. There's just something wonderful. I, I hope you've experienced this, um, that, that young boys need their dads. 
You know, there's just something, daughters need their dads too, but I'm, I can only speak from my own heart as a boy, as a man, and that even to this day, there are just times where I just wish I could pick up the phone and say, Dad, what do you think about this? And just going to their grave, I just, there's just so much. And I, I stood there this last time and I just, and I hope you won't think this is weird, but I was kind of just having a conversation with them both and I know they're in heaven. I know that there's, these were their bodies. Don't, don't think I'm losing my theology here. But I, I, I was talking to mom and I said, Mom, I'm just, I'm so sorry that you had to endure those years of so much suffering. I'm just simply saying to you, I get it. I understand what I believe this woman may have been feeling just an inkling of and her family must have been feeling. It just cost her so much and her suffering cost so much. And if all that wasn't bad enough for this woman, again, we read this a moment ago, but Mark has said, and I don't know if you picked up on this, he said, she also spent all her money. I mean, good grief. Talking about the thing just getting to be a mountain. She has this issue of blood. She goes to the doctors and nothing works and she drains her bank account. How many of you all right now have drained your bank account or have wondered if you're going to be able to handle the medical situations? It's said that in our latter days of life, we spend more money on medical bills and medicines and doctors than ever before in our lives. On houses or cars or anything else. College tuitions. And so again, I ask you, can you imagine what this woman is experiencing? Some of you can. You've been there. You can feel for her. So I don't have to tell you about all of that. But all this to say, Luke says, in addition, she could be healed by no one. Luke 8:43. And Mark says, in 5:26, she was worse than before she went to the doctors. I mean, this is like one of the worst Hollywood movies you can watch. You know, you just kind of want to, I'm not watching that. <laughs> Who wants to be depressed? But this is true. And again, don't, please don't take any of this as an indictment on the doctors. Uh, but the truth is, man is limited. And that's what we're told here. I think God is making it clear. He wants us to know man has only so much ability but not the Lord. Isn't that precious? Jesus has all ability. Jesus can fix anything. I don't know how many times I've sat in my office and I've shared that truth with people who are going through very challenging situations. Before you make your final decision, whomever, 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 just remember this. Jesus can fix anything. Anything. And these healings become an example of that. And so after years of pain and suffering, she hears about Jesus in Capernaum, presumably through others. His fame is growing, and so that would be easy to understand. And so she covertly makes her way to him. And she has to do it covertly because of what we know. She can't touch anybody because they're going to get upset at her if they do or if she does because they'll potentially make them unclean and then they'll have to go through all the ordeal and the ritual. And so in this scene, we don't know the size of the crowd. Mark says that it's a large crowd who is following him and pressing in on him. The only way I can attest to that is my personal life again, and that is if you've ever been in an airport, uh, my famous thought is along these lines are in the Amsterdam airport. 
If you've ever been through that airport, there is a section where you're funneled like cattle through these gates and you stand there for an hour and a half, literally shoulder to shoulder with people. And everybody's pressing around you. And so the scene looks to me like that where she comes up behind him, we're told, and touches him on the cloak and Jesus doesn't know who it is. Well, that's understandable because there's so many people around him. That's the size of the crowd that's going on. And Mark does tell us what she's thinking in verse 28 of chapter 5. For she thought, he says, if I just touch his garments, I'll get well. And immediately the flow of blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. That was her thinking. If I just get close enough to him, if I can just touch his garments... And so let's get inside her head a minute, a minute just beyond that. She gets the news about Jesus, not knowing him personally, evidently. I think if she knew him personally, she probably would have had more, uh, a better, more clear audience, a private audience. Uh, or even apparently being concerned about knowing him personally. She just is done with this situation and she knows he is the source. Some people might say, well, she had no, no other choice. She was desperate. What else is she going to do? I have nothing else to lose. And that's a good place to be sometimes. In fact, I would say, as a believer, that's where we need to live with Jesus. Lord, I can't do this. I've got nowhere else to go. I have no ability to fix this. It is you and you alone who can do this. You see, beloved, that's where he wants us. He's not some psycho and so sick egomaniac who just wants to um, have fun with us, but he wants to break us of ourselves so that we understand that there is nothing but him in life that has any meaning, truly. And so, in a way, though, this seems a little superstitious on her part. I want to explain that a little bit because some of you have come out of and I'll be kind here, but say it this way, superstitious religions. In superstitious religions, there are many people who believe that the power of God comes and works through things, such as the Catholic Church. There's a lot of superstition there that comes, though, and I'm going to show you this, by the way, through biblical means, but it's wrong. And so let's look at this. Catholics have believed over the years that God's power does reside in things, even in people. And there's different manifestations of this, but there are the bodies of lots of saints around the world, uh, the head, the hand, the foot, the toe, the finger, the clothing, lots of different things, and then various relics as well that are promoted and displayed as ways that God's power will channel through. Now, they will admit... Catholics will admit that this is not God, but that through these relics, God uses them to work his power. And that belief, again, comes from places in Scripture, such as Jesus' ascension. Listen to what happened in Acts 5. This is after just at Pentecost, after Jesus was gone. Beginning in verse 12, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. Notice that. Signs and wonders, God was doing a unique thing here, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared associate it with them. In other words, the people were seeing God's power through them, and they just said, oh, man, i got to stay away from that because God was dividing and creating the church. 
but they held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly adding to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Okay, now the idea is here is that the people were saying that we can't get to Peter, but if we can just get in his shadow, we can be healed or our loved ones can be healed. And that seems to be the indication here. But the point is nothing is actually said about people actually being healed. This was the idea at least, but people believed it. And so we have to be a little cautious about it, but this is where some of this thinking comes from. Here's another one. Do you remember the pool at Bethesda? This is the story in John chapter 5 of the people who believed that an angel would come and stir the waters and the first one into the pool could be healed. But that was really superstitious because there's also no proof from that story written that there was actually a healing that occurred. I mean, you would think if this were really the Lord, he would show the people, look, Get in there and you're going to be healed. But really, I want to say, what kind of sick joke would it be on the part of God to say, hey, only the first one in there gets it. That's a sick joke. You take multitudes of people around this pool who've been laying there for years, like the guy who'd been there for 38 years, I think it was, and couldn't make it into the pool, but everybody else got there and God says, ah, sorry for you, buddy, this guy gets it. It was paganism. Believing that that was true. Now, it is true that God had various means of displaying his power. There's a story in 2 Kings that's really interesting. In 2 Kings 13, when Elisha died, it says, and they buried him, bands of Moabites would invade the land in the spring of the year. And as they were burying a man, behold, they saw a marauding band, and they cast the man into the grave of Elisha. And when the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. Now that is a true story that actually happened. God wrote it down for us. He gave us the clarity of it. But that was a very unique event in history. There's nothing given to us about that ever happening again. In other words, God was not establishing a precedent here for the church to hold on to, to say that any person who's considered holy by God can do whatever and their bodies or their relics of their life or anything else that's considered holy can be used for healing or anything else for that matter. On another occasion, after Jesus was resurrected, Paul was also used in a unique way by God. In Acts 19, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. But again, that was a very unique point in history. The scriptures had not been fulfilled. God was completing what he wanted for us to understand and there's nothing said here about the power of God working in a person's body to bless somebody else. This was simply God at work to display his power at that particular point in history. But again, sadly, these things have caused others to believe that this is actually how God works. It's a superstitious belief. In fact, you remember the story of Balaam and the donkey back in Numbers? You remember God was working through the donkey to speak to Balaam and the donkey actually spoke in the language so Balaam understood him? Well, are we to assume that donkeys now are holy relics 
because God at one time spoke through a donkey? Do you see how foolish that is? We can't just assume that just because God has done something amazing in the life of an individual that they become something that others can be blessed through. And Jesus made this very clear here to this woman. We're going to see this in just a second. The writers basically all say the same thing. He clarifies that her faith was what healed her, not touching the fringe of his garment. She thought in her pagan culture that was growing, if I just do this, because it was a very popular thing in pagan life, to just have these relics of various kinds. Now, I've been talking about the Catholic Church, but this was where she was coming from prior to the Catholic Church. If I just touch his garment, well, that seems like a great thing, but Jesus is saying, look, no, it's not that. It's not something of me. It's me that you have faith in. That's what I'm honoring. And this woman came believing, and she was healed. But I think she was he was clarifying that for her, and we're going to see that. Notice, instead of just immediately going on to Jairus's house, now Matthew doesn't record this, but Luke does. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus, in verse 47, sees the woman, watch this, when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him. I think the woman thought, if I just touch his garment, I'll be healed and everything will go by. I can slip back home. Nobody's going to see me. But what happened? Jesus stops immediately. He says, who touched me? She's like, oh boy. Fingered now, right? And the disciples say, Lord, how do we know who touched you? There's a crowd all around you. There's no way to know. He says, no, power went out from me. And so he turns to her and he says... She came trembling and fell down before him. Obviously, she knew there was no way she could escape his notice in the crowd now. She has to deal with this. And declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And don't you just love that first part when she knew that everybody else knew it was her. She didn't run. It was too late. This woman had too much agony in her life and I think now was confession time. Hey, listen, that's where we need to live as well. It needs to be a life of confession. Our life should be lived in such a way that there is nowhere else ever to run. Jesus is our only source. I'm not talking about not going to the doctor and that kind of thing. Praise the Lord for doctors. Go to the doctors. You have a sore throat? Go to the doctor or whatever they tell you to do. What I am saying, though, internally, when we're going to the doctor, we should say, Lord, you are the healer. Use this man or woman to help me. And God will do his work because our faith is in him. So it's all out now. Nothing else to hide. No excuses she can claim. She just knows that Jesus is the only one that can heal her. He's the only one that can fix what's wrong. And so in verse 22, Jesus turns to her and says, I'm back in Matthew now. Daughter, watch this. Take courage. Your faith has made you well. Listen, Jesus is the healer of everything that's broken. Everything. Whether it's our bodies or our relationships, hear me now. He can heal broken relationships. The relationships that you think are gone for good, God can do it. He can fix that. He can heal the broken hearts. 
the hearts that think it's too late. There's nothing that can be done. God can fix it. And he can surely fix broken hopes. When you say and I say there's no reason to continue on with this or that, God can fix it. He can restore our hope. Do you imagine that this woman's life and her hope was restored? Wouldn't you have just loved to have been there? Can you imagine what she must have been feeling at that moment when the Lord says, you're healed? Go. Your faith is what has done this. And I love what he says here. He says, take courage. Take courage. I had to pause on that for a minute. And I had to ask myself the question, why does he say that? Why does he say to her, take courage? I think the answer simply is, because it takes courage to follow him. Doesn't it? I mean, aren't there times in life where it just takes a lot of courage to stand for Jesus? Yeah, it does. Right? I mean, look at the world we're living in now. You're a freak to the world. If you don't think you are, give it some time. You're going to be blamed for everything. You say, how do you know that? I read the book. You're going to be blamed. But we have the answer. But the world doesn't want our answer. The world wants the world's answers. The problem is we as God's people go to the world for the answers instead of going to the God of the world. And that's what Jesus has clarified. I'm the God of the world. Why are you looking to man for all your answers? Sure, man has lots of answers. Man will help you a lot. The world will help you a lot. And I'm talking about the sinful world, the pagan world. They'll help us a lot. But our answers lie in Jesus. Our help, our hope is in Jesus. But it takes courage to follow him. There are lots of illustrations to prove that. You remember in Matthew 9, about back to the paralytic. I already read this earlier. But he says to that paralytic, seeing his faith, Jesus said, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Why did he say take courage? Because I'm sure that that man had lost all of his hope. Listen, courage is not just being strong and bullying your way through. Courage is that person who's totally fearful, totally overcome by the situation, knows that there's no help, but they move on anyway. And the Lord says, I know where you are. I know your hopelessness. I know you're not going to be able to do this on your own. But have courage. Muster up your courage. Trust me and this will work out. Maybe not in the way you want it. But it will work out according to his plan. Again, when Jesus was in the boat with the disciples, Jesus spoke. This is, and I'm reading from Matthew 14. He says to them, take courage. It is I when he was walking to them on the water. Don't be afraid. Be courageous, men. Believe in what you know to be true. In Mark chapter 10, they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus was sitting by the road, and when he heard that it was Jesus, he began to cry out, saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Many more sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more. This is a beautiful picture of courage. Son of David, have mercy on me. He didn't care. He was at his wit's end. He was done. Nobody could help him. He hears about Jesus and he doesn't care what anybody thinks. 
Have mercy on me. Be quiet, be quiet, be quiet, you fool. No, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man says, Rabbi, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go. What? Your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. John chapter 16, one last one. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered. Jesus is saying this to his disciples. Each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Here it is. But what? Take courage. Take courage. I have overcome the world. Take courage. Faith has to go hand in hand with courage. It takes courage. And in every situation of their life in the Bible and in our life, it requires courage. So be careful, beloved. Don't put your hope in man. Don't put your hope in things. There are lots of good things that are helpful. Don't think your clothes make you more spiritual. Right? Don't make yourself think that your routine or whatever you do or what time you pray or what Bible version you read or any of that. I'm not going to be very careful when I say that. But don't think that your hope comes in those things. Put your hope and your faith in Christ alone. And he will guide you in the way that he wants you to go. So the beauty of this encounter, in my opinion at least, is two things. It just shouts out at us, Jesus and faith. Jesus and faith. It's the two things we need in this life. The Lord looks to people of faith who trust him. It's that simple. So you say, well, what does that really mean? It says it means two things then. We must be people of faith. We have to be. Listen, we've talked about this lots before. It's very easy to get lost in what we think and what we feel, what we assume is right. But what God is looking to from his church is to be people of faith. Listen, we look at the world and we say it's not possible the way the current circumstances are. And I don't care what subject you're talking about. And God says... That's because you left me out. When you factor God into everything in life, the equation completely changes. When we live our lives saying, I don't have the money in the bank account, I don't have the health insurance, I don't have the job, I don't have this, 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 and then put COVID on top of all of that, we are as hopeless as anybody else. And the problem is we get that way because we forget Jesus. And we can't do that. He's got to be the main factor. You factor Jesus into the mix of everything, and all of a sudden, hope arises. Doesn't it? Life becomes new. Because he's God. And he can do anything. When our faith is weak, we need to pray for strength. And we do get weak in our faith. I'll admit that straight up. We have to be people who 
look to God to help us in our weakness. Lord, be like the man who said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Be honest. And say to the Lord, Lord, my faith is weak, but I want it to be strong. Help me to be a a man or woman of faith. And he will. Because he says in Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please him. But the mystery of God is that he gives us the very ability to believe in the first place. But we have to trust him. So, how's your faith? How's your faith this morning? Strong? Weak? Kind of in the middle? You know, you're strong over here, but when it comes to this, you're not so sure? That's really how we live, isn't it? Oh, Jesus is Lord of all. Bless his name. Man, how am I going to meet that need today? You see, we just kind of straddle the fence. This woman got to a place where it's like, no more straddling the fence. I don't want to mess anybody's life up, so I'll just go quietly. But I know if I can just get close to Jesus and I can just touch his garment. She's hearing the world say that, right? But I know who he, he's different. And he says, no, woman, it's your faith. That's why I'm blessing you. It's your faith. Nothing else. So do you believe that Jesus can meet all your needs? Okay. Then let's move forward, right? Let's march. Let's take courage and let's face the things that come. And God will help us. He's really good at that. Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy. Lord, how could we be thinking anything but wonderful thoughts this morning about these truths of these literal people who lived literal lives, who lived literally in history at literal times, who were a part of your great work, And Lord, your word teaches us from those times, even into today, that you are still the same God. It really is quite amazing how often we forget that the God who literally parted the waters for the Hebrews to walk through on dry land is the same God who provides our daily bread for us today. The same God who's with us when we're in the doctor's office, when we're in the lawyer's office, when we're trying to figure out what to do with our children and and all this and that. There's so many subjects that fall under this. You're the same God. You're the same God. Lord, help our unbelief. Would you just as a church give us the ability to believe and to trust you for big things? Lord, would you just heal relationships? Would you heal the brokenness of physical bodies? We know we're not going to live forever. We're not asking for that, at least in this physical body. And we know we will in the spiritual body. But Lord, we just need a lot of help. Our church needs a lot. Our community needs a lot. They need us. Lord, there's so much. Would you just give us the faith to believe you? And then, Lord, give us the courage to follow you. We thank you for coming to give your life for us. And because of that, we believe We know that you are God, and we're going to celebrate that right now, even in our communion with you. And so search our hearts, we pray, Lord, and help us in our weaknesses. We thank you that you are the God who restores hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.